following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. It's interesting to think of the role of a preacher. He is to get up with a Bible, speak up, and then shut up. And let God do the work. And so that's my hope this morning that what a wonderful thing that we get to every week gather as a people, not because this is a social club to satisfy the felt needs of one another, but the reality is that we have come from all over the place in terms of location but also in terms of our hearts and our trials and our temptations and our sufferings and our tribulations. We've come from all over the place, and yet we've all come under the authority of God's word, and we step out of the way, as it were, and we let God govern us by his word and refine us by his word and instruct us by his word and correct us and discipline us and encourage us and edify us and renew us and encourage us by his word. Everything that needs to be done in your heart and in my mind happens by God's spirit working and wielding the sword of his word precisely where we need it, when we need it, and how we need it. And so this morning, I would invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians, the letter of Paul to the Colossians in chapter one. I want to speak to you this morning about the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son. I want you to see this morning that the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ serve as the foundation and the fuel for a fruitful life that brings glory to God. Again, I want you to see and understand this morning that the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ serve as the foundation and the fuel for a fruitful life that brings glory to God. Both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ declared that every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The Bible teaches that men and women, boys and girls, are all fruit-bearing trees. There are those who bear good fruit and there are those who bear bad fruit. There are those who bear fruit for God and there are those who bear fruit for death, according to Romans chapter 7. I want every person hearing my voice to bear fruit for the glory of God so that you are not cut down and thrown into the fire on that last day. It is coming. You can mark it down. There is an actual day coming when those with bad fruit will be cut down and thrown into the eternal, unquenchable fire. What a shame, and as I was thinking about it, what a 
tragedy that after years of sitting under the nourishing water of the word of God, what a shame it would be for you to stand before God in the end and all you have to show on your branches are rotten, it is rotten, deformed, putrid, useless fruit. There's no excuse for that because we're under the nourishment of God's word. We're under the authority of his word. We're under the sufficiency of his word. We're under the sweetness of his word. We ought to bear fruit by receiving all that he has and all that he is for us and trust that he will prune us and ensure that as we are connected to the vine as his branches and abide in him, by the grace of God, we will bear fruit that wasn't forced out by us, but produced by him. And so this morning, I firmly believe that the best and the most loving thing that I can do for you, every one of you, is point you to the one whose supremacy and sufficiency serve as the foundation and the fuel for a fruitful life that brings glory to the living God. And so with that, it's with great joy and a tremendous sense of privilege and honor and unworthiness that I invite you to hear and heed the faith-arousing words of the living God. Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, even though our focus this morning will be on verses 15 through 23. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As the Apostle Paul is in his Roman prison cell, in chains because of his love and loyalty to his savior and king, he apparently receives news of what was happening in the city of Colossae, specifically amongst the believers. False teachers had made their way into the life of the church. Wherever there is light, bugs will gather. We are not told who these false teachers are and exactly what they believed, but if we gather all of the clues that Paul gives us in this letter, we have either an early form of Gnosticism, which would ultimately emerge and bloom in the second century, or we have a blend of Jewish and local pagan folk folk belief informed by magic and initiation rituals from mystery religions and certain Jewish practices, or we have a form of Jewish mysticism, and I lean towards that one the most, as we'll see. In the end, it really doesn't matter, does it, what it was, because whatever it was, at the root of all false teaching, both then and now, at the root of all false teaching, both then and now, is a defective and distorted view of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul picks up his pen, as it were, and before attacking the fruit of these false teachers, he addresses the root of the problem, the root of the issue, which is a defective Christology, a distorted view of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we have in our text this morning, is one of the most concentrated Christologies in all of the Bible. When I say Christology, I'm referring to that which relates to the person and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. As one commentator pointed out regarding this passage, one of the distinctive contributions, if not the distinctive contribution of Colossians is its comprehensive vision of reality with the focal point of Christology. In other words, what he's saying is that Colossians is about reality as it centers around the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's how we are to view reality in light of him. Our worldview, everything we believe about life and existence and reality ought to be formed and forged in light of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Some of the clues of the false, teacher, uh, false teaching in this book, if you want to look at Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So tradition, empty deceit, philosophy, Colossians 2.11 Paul seems to allude to the true circumcision in contrast with the circumcision that the false teachers were pressing upon the people. In him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Moving on in chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do you see what's happening here? Every false teaching is rooted in a distorted view of Christ, a distorted view of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 2.18, let no one disqualify you. Let no one throw you out of the race, insisting on asceticism or harsh treatment of your body in order to produce holiness. And worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. He keeps bringing it back to Christ. He keeps bringing it back to Christ. The Christian life is a life lived with our eyes on Christ. And it's so easy for us to forget that. It's so easy to reduce the Christian life to do's and don'ts and rules and regulations when it's about a person. It is about looking to him. It is about finding yourself in him, recognizing your identity in him. That's what the Christian life is all about. Colossians 2.20 If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These practices and customs and regulations that the false teachers are throwing upon you guys, they offer no help in putting your sin to death. You hold fast to the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this spirit-inspired apostle picks up his pen and gets straight to the heart of the matter. Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the centrality of Christ. I would encourage you to do the same when you're engaging with the cults of this world. The cults, whether it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the World Mission Society, Church of God, or other world religions. Don't dance around the differences 
of doctrine and all these other areas get to the heart of the matter. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if we're wrong there, we're wrong about everything else. Because everything flows from him. All of salvation's benefits, they all flow from him. He's the center. He's supreme. He is sufficient. I want to do two things this morning. I want to set Christ before you the same way Paul sets him before the Colossians in verses 15 through 23. And then what I want to do with the rest of our time together is draw out three sets of imperatives that flow from this glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who he is and then how we're called to live in light of who he is. Our map this morning, our outline is very simple. The supremacy of Christ, verses 15 through 18. And then the sufficiency of Christ, verses 19 through 23. But in verses 15 through 18, we see the supremacy of Christ, first of all, over creation, verses 15 through 17. And then we see the supremacy of Christ over the new creation, the church, verse 18. So the supremacy of Christ over creation and then over the new creation, the church. Let me define for you supremacy. Lest we sound like we're just, unless we think we're all thinking the same thing and we're not. Supremacy refers to the state or condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, or status. The state or condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, or status. Other words for supremacy, predominance, primacy, dominion, authority, mastery, control, power, sway, rule, sovereignty, lordship. So the supremacy of Christ over creation. Look at verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, speaking of Christ, because that's the last one referred to in verses 13 and 14, he is the image of the invisible God. The word image is the word icon, transfers right into the English, right? Something that's the exact representation of something else. The Lord Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. We are told in the Bible that God is invisible. He is spirit. No one has ever seen God at any time. But John came and told us in the Gospel of John that the Son of God came to reveal and exegete the Father to us. No one has ever seen God, but the only God at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has unfolded him. He has explained him to us. Jesus would say in that upper room discourse, specifically to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the brightness, the radiance of the glory of God, and he is the exact representation of his nature. This is the first thing Paul sets before these Colossians. And isn't it interesting that before getting into debunking or, you know, uh, attacking these myths and these false teachings, he focuses in on the most important reality, who Christ is. He is the image of the unseen God. 
He is what you can see about the unseen God. He is the image, the icon of all that God is. Secondly, it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Many of the cults today love this verse because they assume that it teaches that Christ was the firstborn of all creation, the first one to be born in creation, as if he was the created one, the created being of God, the created son of God. But actually, firstborn is not necessarily, we're not to think of the word firstborn in terms of chronology and timeline, but in terms of rank and authority. Rank and authority. You remember that God referred to Israel as his firstborn, even though we know Israel was not the firstborn nation on earth. But firstborn refers to rank and authority and inheritance. The inheritance in that culture would be given to the firstborn. Everything that the father had to give would be given to the firstborn son. And so we know Specifically, if we look at Psalm 89, if you want to turn there with me really quick, Psalm 89, there's a messianic prophecy regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm David refers, or we, we read about the Messiah here being the firstborn. I will set him as the firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth. Do you see that? Making someone his firstborn sets him as the highest of all the kings on earth. That's what firstborn signifies, his rank in his authority, his sovereignty. Verse 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's how we're to think of this phrase. He is the firstborn over all creation. The one to whom the creation belongs as the one God-man to inherit in the entire cosmos. Jesus Christ as the image of the invisible God, the word made flesh, God in human form is the one to inherit all of creation, all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus said, have been given to me, given to me. Why? We'll look at verse 16. For he's explaining why he's the firstborn of all creation. He's explaining why he's the one to inherit all of creation. He's explaining the reason why he's the highest ranking king in all of the universe. For by him, all things were created. So it would make no sense for us to fall into the interpretation of the cults and say, well, he's the firstborn in all of creation because he created everything. That makes no sense. But he's the firstborn to inherit all of creation because he created it all as God. But now as the God-man, he inherits it all. He is set above all thrones and all kingdoms and all dominion and all authority. 
For by him all things were created. We are confronted here with the creator Christ. When we think of creation, we often think in terms of God the Father, and that's it. But we have to understand the whole Bible's perspective on creation and life and reality. And the fact is that all of this that we see, and even things that we don't see, he says, things visible and things invisible, things on earth and things in heaven, realities that we, that we are not even familiar with because they are beyond the reach of our eyes and our sight. It's all created by Christ, the word of God, all fashioned by him, all created by him. We need to understand that. Paul is setting that forth here. Before talking about Christ the Redeemer, Paul focuses in on Christ the Creator. Every mountain, every planet, every galaxy created by the Lord Jesus Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether, and now he gets into the spiritual realm. He touches on the physical realm. But now he talks about the spiritual realm, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. This is important because as we're going to see, as you'll see later on, if you study more of Colossians, the false teachers were promoting this unhealthy obsession with angels and the worship of angels. And Paul says he created all these authorities. He created all these thrones upon which these authorities sit. He created them all. He fashioned them all. He spoke them all into existence. This one is, it's amazing that not long before this, this Jesus of Nazareth was crucified in weakness upon a cross. And now Paul turns around and says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because the one that died on that cross was the one who created the planet and the trees that would eventually form that cross. He created it all, both physical realm and spiritual realm. And notice the end of verse 16. He is not only the image of the invisible God. He is not only the firstborn, highest ranking king to inherit all of creation as the God man. He is not just the creator of it all. He is the sustainer of it all. Look at the end of verse 16. And all things were created through him and for him. Created through him and for him. All things were created for Christ. Again, the Christian life is to be lived with this objective truth in mind. I was created by Christ and I was created for Christ. It's amazing that I can stand before you. I don't know all the details of your life. I don't know exactly how you, your upbringing was. I don't know exactly what will happen to you tomorrow or the day after that or the three years after today. But I can tell you with absolute certainty and objective reality that you were made to glorify and honor the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why you're here. That's why you were created. That's why you were knitted together in your mother's womb. That's why you were given the breath of life. That's why you entered into this world to, to glorify and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. You were made to be ravished by his glory. You were made to behold him 
and to be found in him. You were made to be obsessed with the all-satisfying, ever-satisfying glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made you by himself and for himself. That's the truth. That's the reality. And I stand upon the authority of God's own word in telling you that. You were created by him and for him. And it's only when your life begins to acknowledge that and live in light of that that life begins to fall into place and make sense. The reason we see the world in the condition that it is in is because there's an unwillingness to acknowledge that we exist for his glory and for his good pleasure and for his honor. It's when we revolve ourselves around this reality the way the planets revolve around the sun, that everything is put into perfect order. But when we align everything around us and center around us, we create all sorts of chaos and all sorts of mess, all sorts of ungodliness. All things were created through him and for him. And moving on now, I want you to see that he is the sustainer of it all. Verse 17. And he is before all things. Before all things. All things. One of the threads throughout this section is the phrase all things, everything, all things, everything. He is before it all. He stands at at, at the very beginning of history before everything else. Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is before everything. He is before the mountains. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, Psalm 90 says, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God, Yahweh. You were God, Christ You are God. You are before all things. And notice that little phrase at the end of verse 17. And in him, all things hold together. He is the sustainer of it all. Scientists and physicists, chemists are amazed at, still amazed at the reality of how atoms are actually held together. There's no reason they should be held together. I mean, we are composed of nuclear material that if they were to get set off would result in the entire undoing of the universe. And I wonder if that's what's going to happen in the end. Peter talks about the, 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 the heavens and the earth dissolving with a, a loud roar. Could it be that that all comes by the word of Christ when he says enough? And everything is dissolved. And everyone is ushered in to stand before him in judgment. When reality and life and mountains and molehills and everything that we know as reality dissolves into nothingness at his word, that's because Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that the entire universe is held together by the word of Jesus Christ. Everything, to use one artist's line the heavens and the earth are held together by speech someone's speech someone's word he commanded and it stood fast he decreed 
and everything obeyed. That's how powerful the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is supreme. He is predominant. He is sovereign over absolutely everything. Everything is created by him, exists for him, and sustained by him, preserved, upheld. This is foundational, right? He is about to talk to the Colossians about their perseverance to the end. If the one Christ who sustains the entire universe by the power of his word, if if that is objectively true, how will he not sustain you to the end? How will he not preserve you until the end? If he holds together galaxies that would swallow our galaxy, stars that would swallow our entire planet several times over, if he sustains all of that, Will he not sustain your faith until the end? Will he not hold you fast till the end? In him all things hold together. So we see Christ supreme over all of created reality, physical and spiritual. Secondly, though, we see the supremacy of Christ over the church, the new creation. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body in terms of its leadership and direction and guidance and authority. He is the head of the body, the church. He does not share his bride with any other leaders. He does not share his church with any other sovereigns. He is the one head of the body. He is the one head of the church. Caesar is not head of the church. Our president is not the head of the church. World rulers are not the head of the church. Christ alone is the head of the church. And we answer to him. We are responsible and accountable to him. Everything we do within the church is going to be examined by him. Even now, as the head of the church, we learn in Revelation 2 and 3 that he is the one who even now walks in the midst of his church. He knows our works. He sees our motivations. He knows our intentions. He sees our lack of zeal. He sees our lack of love. And praise God that he is not just there to chastise us when he sees a lack of zeal and sees a lack of love. He comes along us, alongside of us, and he kindles the flames of our love. He draws us to the source of zeal and joy and passion, which is his own passion for his own glory. And he he rekindles us and he sets us ablaze again. And then he sends us out and he's still with us, walking in our midst, holding us, keeping us, treasuring us as his portion, as his sheep, as his bride. He is the head of the church. And everything we do ultimately flows from his guidance, his direction, his authority and leadership. That's why as pastors, we have no authority, no right to come and point you to anything or anyone else. That's why we come and I have no right to come and bring you a message that I've thought of, thought of in my mind or uh, agenda that I've devised in my heart and creativity. I have no right because I'm not the head. The head is Christ and you need to hear his word. You need to fix your eyes on him. You need to trust him. He is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. And notice, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn 
from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I believe Paul is alluding to the new creation which has broken out amongst his people. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Well, the very first new creation, if you will, was the resurrected Jesus. When he was raised, he was the first fruits of all who would come after him. He was not only the first one to rise from the dead and reign as God's Christ, but he is the first among many who will rise from the dead. He is the firstborn, the dawn of the new creation. We who are in Christ are new creatures in Christ. Newness has begun. Newness has been inaugurated. Newness has, has come and it started. God took this old world decaying in sin and he sent forth his image, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he died for his people and he rose from the dead. And that resurrection marked a new era that would never pass away. A new era of newness that would come and grow and expand and abide and take over forever. So that when we enter into the new heavens and the new earth, we, had our, we, we as the church will have already experienced that newness of life. So this newness has come from the head of the body, the firstborn from the dead, and he will bring all of his people whom he has made new into this new creation. He is the head of the body, the firstborn from the dead. And here's the purpose, that in everything he might have the first place. He might be preeminent. This is God's design, that in everything Christ would be preeminent regarded as first and supreme, the priority. This is God's purpose, that Christ have the preeminence. And we see right now that not all things are put under his feet. I mean, in one sense, yeah, everything's under his feet. He's been exalted and heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Everything's been put under his feet, but we do not yet see everything subjected to him yet. We know that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But mark it down, friends. All rebellion in the universe will come to an end and God will deal with his enemies decisively at the last day when he casts them into eternal exile into the lake of fire that he might be preeminent, that he might be sovereign and supreme over absolutely everything. He is the head. He is the founder of the new creation, the pioneer of the new creation, the author of the new creation, that in everything he might be preeminent. And now Paul, after discussing and setting before them the supremacy of Christ over creation and over the new creation, he now hones in, zeroes in, focuses in on now the sufficiency of Christ that flows out of his supremacy. In other words, we know that he's enough because of who he is. We know that he's enough for our salvation and our, our, our everlasting joy and happiness and deliverance. He is enough because of who he is. His sufficiency flows out of his supremacy. Notice what Paul says now in verse 19. For in him, 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So we see in verses nine, in verse 19, we see the supremacy is seen in his person as God with us. And then in verses 20 through 23, the, supremacy, the sufficiency is seen in his work as God for us. God for us. But I want you to consider verse 19. The sufficiency of Christ that is seen in his person as God with us. For in him, for in him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the head, the, the creator, the goal of creation, all things created for him. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It pleased the Father. It brought delight to the Father to take all that he is into an incarnate Son. To put all that he is, the fullness of his omnipotence, the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his mercy, the fullness of his righteousness, the fullness of his truth, all residing bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder he is called the radiance of the very glory of God. The fullness of God delighted, chose, was pleased to dwell in the Son. You better believe he's sufficient in himself as God with us. Notice the sufficiency of Christ in his work Verses 20-23. It also pleased the Father that through Christ he would reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It brought the Father pleasure that Christ would be the one not only to contain all the fullness of deity in a body, that it also pleased the Father that this Son would be the one to reconcile all things to himself. Now, this does not signify or even hint at universalism or universal salvation. We know, I mean, we're, we're going to read, we'll see later in chapter 2, that the wrath of God is coming. It will be poured out. Not everyone will be saved. So he's not saying he's going to reconcile all things in terms of even the lost. There are theologians out there who believe that this teaches that in the very end, God will reconcile his enemies on the day of judgment and bring all people into the kingdom. The rest of scripture refuses to let us think that way. There is a wide road that leads to destruction and many are in on that road. And there is a narrow path that leads to life, and few there be that find that road. By the illuminating grace of Christ that leads them to that road. What the idea here is universal reconciliation. In other words, like we read about in Romans chapter 8, all of creation right now that is presently groaning under the weight of corruption and decay will, will one day enter into the freedom and the liberty of the children of God. On what day? When Christ returns. Creation is waiting for its king to return because all things were created through him and for him. And creation will be in its proper place when the king comes and takes his place amongst his creation in his second coming. He will reconcile all things. Heaven and earth will be one. 
There will be, everything will be under the supremacy of Christ. How did this reconciliation take place? Well, notice the blood of his cross. The death that took place on Calvary's hill. When God dealt with the sin of his people once and for all in putting away their sin by the sacrifice of his son and then when his son was raised to newness of life he became the founder, the pioneer of many people who would follow him in walking in newness of life that would one day fill all of creation with his newness. He made peace by the blood of his cross. Look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. So now he kind of shifts to, from all things and everything to now you. And that's a good example. right? It's good to talk in objective terms. All things, everything. But really, reality is about you and where you stand before God. He says, and you who once were alienated, separated, and hostile in mind, that is, hateful towards God in, in the way you thought about reality, doing evil deeds, Christ, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He reconciled you. He paid a debt that he did not owe for a people that could not pay this debt. He reconciled you. He brought you back. I love when the Bible attributes certain things to God the Father and certain things to God the Son. And we know that from 1st, 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But we read here specifically that it was Christ who reconciled you to himself. Did you catch that? Remember, all things were created through him and for him, which is why he reconciled you for himself, to himself. We think that salvation is just about escaping hell and wrath. Or in this life, just being delivered from sin, its power, its influence, its slavery. Reconciliation brings you to a person. He brought you to himself. He reconciled you to himself. Isn't it interesting that we, you know, we have these meetings where there's, there's conflict between two parties, and so a mediator steps in and seeks to reconcile both parties. What we read about here is that the offended party, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose holiness had him offended at our sinfulness and our guilt and our glory trading and glory exchanging and glory despising, that the one whom we offended is the one who comes and reconciles us to himself. He did not need a mediator between him and us. He is that mediator between God and man. And this reconciler comes and he reconciles us. This is love. We didn't initiate the reconciliation. We didn't deserve it. We didn't want it. But he performed it. He did it. He reconciled you to himself in his death, by his death. And notice the reason. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Don't ever lose that. You see, what I'm showing you this morning is that all of salvation centers around and flows from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He reconciles you to himself so that in the end, on the day of judgment, you are presented not as sinful and rebellious and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. No, he's going to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Before him. He's presenting you to himself. He's presenting you to himself. Because all things are from him and through him and to him. This is all very similar to that doxology that we have at the end of Romans chapter 11, verse 36, when Paul just describes this glorious, grand salvation. He sums it all up by saying, for from God and through God and to God are all things. God is the origin. He is the means and he is the end. And we can say the same thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the origin of all things, the sustainer of all things, and he is the goal. The end, the purpose for which all things exist. Christ, Christ, Christ. We will stand before him holy, we who by nature are unholy. We will stand before him as blameless, we who are by no means in our natures blameless. And we will stand before him on that day above reproach. That is beyond the point of accusation. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who indeed right now is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Because we are created by him and for him. And having sought us out and reconciled us to himself, we will stand before him. Does that... Fuel your hatred for sin, believer. It should. That you will stand before him without a single charge against you. At least a charge that will stick anyways. Right now, we know that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He stands, we see him in Revelation, standing before the throne of God, accusing the saints of all their many, many sins. And he is right. But none of those accusations will stick or can stick because their debt has already been paid in full by the Lamb, by the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you and I will stand before him on that day when we have every reason to fall to our faces and and hide ourselves from his glorious holiness. He will present you to himself as holy and blameless and above reproach before him, him, before him. Notice the condition here, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith. Again, he's wanting to pump endurance and perseverance into the veins of these Christians in Colossae. If indeed you continue in the faith. If indeed you persevere in the faith. Stable and steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Notice how he's not calling them to strenuous self-exertion and self-effort. We have this perseverance language, right? If you continue in the faith, what does that look like? Not moving off of Christ. You see that? It's right there in the text. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, how do you do that? By not 
shifting from the hope of the gospel. You persevere by doing nothing but resting upon Christ. You persevere and continue to the end by making sure that he is all your hope and stay. You persevere to the end by saying, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You persevere to the end by making sure that he is your only hope. Fighting, as I said last week, to rest in him alone. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's how you stay. And so as Paul lays before the church the supremacy of Christ over creation and over the new creation, and as he sets before them the sufficiency of Christ in his person as God in the flesh, and as he sets before them the sufficiency of Christ in his work as the reconciler, now Paul is ready to address the problems. It's as though they've gone in for a doctor's appointment and they have all these things wrong with them. And Paul says, this is what's really wrong with you. You're not thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ the way you ought to think of him. He is supreme and he is sufficient. He is sovereign and he is enough for life now and life everlasting. Now I want to call your attention as we close to three sets of imperatives or commands or charges that flow from and center around both the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. Again, these aren't commands by themselves. They're commands that center around the son of this Christian solar system, the Lord Jesus Christ. Set number one, Colossians chapter two, verse six. Set number one, Colossians two, verse six. Therefore, after he has stated that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says to them, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's imperative number one. Walk in him. What does that look like? He explains it in the verse seven. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Hold fast to what you were taught. Walk in him. You were created by him. You exist for him. Now walk in him. The Christian life is walking in Christ with his power in us, his wisdom in us, his spirit in us, his word in us, governing us, leading us, instructing us, ruling us, leading us, shepherding us. So walk in him. Walk in him abounding with thanksgiving. Set number two, go to Colossians 3. How do we live, Paul, in light of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ? Well, as you received him, walk in him. Don't walk away from him. Don't walk around him. Don't walk beside him. Walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Set number two is found in Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You were created by him and for him. And when he appears, you'll appear with him in glory. So not only are we called to walk in Christ, we are called to think on Christ. We are called to meditate upon Christ, to fight, to stay our minds on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, the natural outflow of that is that you will seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. There's no such thing as being too earthly minded to be, or too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Be a heavenly minded Christian, be a Christ minded Christian. Paul is calling the believers in Colossae to fixate their minds and what they think about and what they, what they dwell upon. It's a fight, friend. It's a fight. It doesn't come naturally. If this came naturally, we wouldn't need the command. Sometimes we think, oh man, I must not be a Christian because these things don't flow naturally for me. Well, welcome to the party. Welcome to the camp. It's a fight. You think because I'm a pastor that it's easier for me? We have to fight to keep our minds focused on Christ because being fallen still, in the process of being sanctified still, our minds are prone to wander Our hearts, our minds are prone to wander. As the song says, prone to leave the God we love. Set your minds on things above where Christ is. Think about what he's doing for you, interceding for you. Think about those wounds that speak eternal peace and reconciliation and propitiation over your life. Wrath is satisfied. Justice is satisfied where Christ is. Why should we do this? Why should we set our minds on things above? Look at verse three. For, because you have died. You realize, Christian, you've already had one of two funerals. You've already had one. The day you were raised with Christ, that old man, that old woman died. You died. And your life is now hidden. With Christ in God. In Ephesians, he says that we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What a picture that the Christian is hidden with Christ, tucked away in Christ, concealed in Christ, in God. And then he points us to the future when Christ, who is your life. I mean, Paul is just setting forth Christ as the Christian's absolute everything. The creator, the sustainer, the firstborn, the image of the invisible God. Supreme, sufficient. And he boils it down in verse four. He is your very life. He is your life. The source of your life and the goal of your life. He is your life. When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All of these imperatives and commands flow from the supremacy Lordship, sovereignty, and sufficiency of Christ. And the last set is in verse 
5 and following. I want you to, I want you to look at this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Remember, set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. When it comes to things on the earth, put those things to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion or lust, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul would not call us to put these things to death if it was not possible to put these things to death. And this is an interesting thing about the Christian life is I want you to understand that we don't, when we put something to death, it's not a once and for all thing. The Christian life is like a garden, beautiful, beautiful garden that's been planted by God. But in this garden, there are weeds that pop up. And we're, the same way we put to death a weed, we don't expect that that weed is, you know, weeds are going to forever stay gone in the garden, right? And we put that weed to death, we get to the root of it, we pluck it out, we pull it out. We don't just chop it because we know it's going to grow back stronger. We have to deal with it at the root. And then it's only a matter of time between, before another lust arises, another impure thought Another evil desire comes up. Uh, another form of covetous arises and springs up. And then we pull that, pluck it. It's a constant reality of putting sin to death. As verse 6 says, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So he's gonna, you're going to see now how he's getting into the life of the church. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So now that he's said put off, verse 12 says put on. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And notice how he closes this set of imperatives. And let the peace of Christ... Rule in your hearts. The, remember, he made that peace by the blood of his cross, chapter 1. Let that peace rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Be at peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, notice the supremacy of Christ, friends. Notice it here. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Christian life is overwhelmingly Christ-centered. Unashamedly Christ-centered. Everything we're commanded to do 
flows from his supreme, his supremacy and his sufficiency. The way you're to, what, 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 what should fill your mind? Things above where Christ is. What should you put off? Things that do not reflect Christ. What should you put on? Things that reflect Christ. What should rule in your heart? The peace of Christ. What should fill your mind? The word of Christ. What should you do? Well, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, do it for his glory. Do it for his honor. Because one day you will stand before him and it will matter. You might think right now, my life doesn't matter. My obedience when no one's around doesn't matter. It matters. What I do when everyone else is gone doesn't matter. It matters. It matters tremendously. Do everything in his name, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want to close by reminding you and showing you that in these verses that we have looked at today, we find the answers to life's ultimate questions. The world will answer them one way, and the Bible answers them another way. There's four questions that you wrestle with, that you have wrestled with, or you will one day, hopefully, wrestle with. Question number one. Who am I? Who am I? The world will tell you. Postmodernism will tell you. Secular humanism will tell you. Your life is meaningless because you are nothing but the result of evolution. You're just a random accident in the universe. You have no meaning. You just happen to happen. You just happen to be here. The Bible's answer to the question, who am I? You are created by Christ. You are made in the image of God by one who is the image of God. We're image in, he's image of, right? We're made in his likeness, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We're made for him, created by Christ. You have, you are the, in fact, you are, according to Genesis, you are the crowning jewel of God's creation. That was man. man God created all these things before, but when he created man, he says, this is very good. He saved the best for the last because it would be man that he would come to dwell among and, and, and reconcile and save. Second question, why am I here? The world will tell you. Secular humanism will tell you. Well, since you are a cosmic accident in the universe, you're just here to get all you can get. You're just here to consume. And if anyone stands in your way, deal with them. That's why the world is the way it is. It's because it's operating off of, I'm an accident, but I'm here to get all I can get. It's a very inconsistent way of thinking. And I'm here to crush anyone that stands in my way. The Bible's answer to the question, why am I here? Why are you here? You're here to glorify and honor the one who created you, the Lord Jesus Christ. All things are created through him and for him. That's why you exist. That's why you have breath. You're created for him. Third question, what's wrong with the world? We ask that question. Universities are asking that question. People all around us are asking the question, what is wrong with the world? That assumes that there's some sense of morality in the mind that's saying something's wrong here. When I turn on the news, something's wrong. 
And the world will say what's wrong with the world is that we just don't have the right education. People need education. People need a good environment. Yet we've seen the most educated people in the world still unable to define what a male is and what a female is and what marriage is and what life is and when life starts. So the problem is not a lack of education. But that's what the world will tell you. What does the Bible say? What's wrong with you? It says in those verses, you're hostile in mind towards God. The problem with the world, what's wrong with the world? Simple answer, biblical answer, you and me and everyone around you. That's what's wrong with this world. The last question, how can all the wrong be made right? Again, the world would tell you, you just need the right education. You just need the right upbringing. You need the right environment. The Bible says no. The only thing that will make things right has already happened. The reconciling death of the Son of God and those who have turned to him will experience a new life and a new world where all things are made right, where righteousness reigns and dwells and there's no more curse, no more pain, no more suffering because there will be no more sin in that day. And that was all flowing from the redemptive work of the Son of God. Who are you? You're created by Christ. Why are you here? You're created, you're, you're, you're here for him to glorify and honor him. What's wrong with the world? You and everyone around you, how can it be made right? Looking to the reconciler, looking to the Savior. Let's pray.